Hello, I'm Steve Hall, Senior Vice President for Advocacy at ACEC, inviting you to join us in June at the Annual Convention and Legislative Summit in Washington, D.C. The Annual Convention is our most important advocacy event, where ACEC's citizen lobbyists, that's you, play a critical role in educating lawmakers on top issues that affect your business. The good news is Capitol Hill is back open for business, making it easier for you to engage your House and Senate members in their offices. We need your voice to support our grassroots effort on critical issues facing the engineering industry right now, including repealing the new five-year amortization requirement to use the R&D tax credit, workforce issues and STEM education, implementation of the bipartisan infrastructure law, and other priorities. Registering for the convention also gets you access to educational sessions and our keynote speakers, including former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, I look forward to seeing you this June at the ACEC Annual Convention and Legislative Summit. Make sure to register today. Thank you. Welcome to Engineering Influence, a podcast from the American Council of Engineering Companies. And today, I am very pleased to be joined by Congressman David Rouser from the state of North Carolina. He is also the subcommittee chairman on uh, the Water Resources and Environment Subcommittee of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. And uh, we have a, a, a good, I think it's perfect time for some conversations on infrastructure and the work that the committee is doing. And uh, Congressman, thank you uh, so much for joining us today. Uh, really appreciate the time you're taking to uh, uh, join us on the program. Yeah, well, good to be with you. Now, Congressman, uh, uh, you know we're going to have uh, our congressional uh, fly-in, um, our annual spring legislative event next month in June, about four weeks from the time we're recording this, and I'm sure that we're going to have a lot of uh, members from Tar Heel State down. Uh, uh, the halls of Capitol, but for those of, uh, of uh, our membership who uh, are not familiar with the work that you're doing on the Hill, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and also the district you represent. Uh, so my district is southeastern North Carolina. Uh, Wilmington is the uh, population center of the district, and then I go uh, uh, further west uh, to Lumberton and in uh, Fayetteville, and many of your uh, uh, listeners in the audience, I'm sure, or viewers on the podcast here, I'm sure have been on I-95 before and cut right through Lumberton and, and Fayetteville. And uh, so that basically is the Western uh, portion of the district and then uh, goes down to the South Carolina line all the way uh, to the coast. I have a lot of uh, Army Corps of Engineer issues that I deal with in my district. Uh, of course, we have hurricanes, uh, flood mitigation issues uh, that uh, we're constantly dealing with. And then uh, a very strong agriculture uh, sector in the district as well. And, uh, but I've, uh, I've been on the Hill now a total of about 17 years, uh, seven years with both Elizabeth Dole, uh, U.S. Senator Elizabeth Dole, and then before that, U.S. Senator Jesse Helms. Uh, that was back in a different day in a different era. And, uh, and of course, uh, now on uh, Capitol Hill as a member of Congress on the House side, uh, I'm in my ninth year, my fifth term. I uh, have been on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee the entire time, as well as the House Agriculture Committee. 
and Congressman, as as chair of the the Water Resources Committee and working with the uh, with Chairman Graves, uh, you know, WERDA has been a significant piece of core Army Corps legislation uh, that you know Chairman Schuster worked to get that to be a, a biennial bill every two years. Consider a WERDA bill. Uh, how important right now is that on the list of uh, the things that you need to do at the committee to get that bill done? Well, it's uh, it's a high priority, and uh, we're going to have another bipartisan bill. Um, probably start working on it uh, late this year. In the meantime, though, uh, we're going to continue oversight as it relates to the 2020 uh, WARDA and the 2022 uh, WARDA bills. And of course, um, obviously, we'll be aiming, as I mentioned, uh, to start work on the uh, 2024 WARDA bill uh, late this year. And, and, and of course, we'll move in the next year with that as well. Um, obviously, uh, WOTUS uh, has been a big topic for the committee. Uh, uh, Senator, uh, pardon me, Congressman Chairman uh, Sam Graves and I uh, sponsored the uh, CRA to repeal the uh, Waters of the U.S. Uh, rule. Uh, got a good, uh, pretty good bipartisan vote in the House and in the Senate. Obviously, not enough to override a veto, uh, but uh, was very proud of the effort uh, here in Congress uh, to push back on that. Uh, a very flawed uh, uh, rule. And then, of course, uh, permitting reform is top on the agenda uh, for the subcommittee as well. Uh, as part of H.R. 1, we included uh, uh, Section 401 uh, uh, reforms to tighten up that language a little bit. And uh, so uh, looking forward to uh, continuing those efforts as we move forward in the subcommittee this year. And actually, you you authored that part of HR one that the uh, the Water Quality Certification and Energy Projects Improvement Act uh, that focuses in on on Section four hundred one. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and the uh, the uh, you know what was the idea behind the bill and and what you know you, you hope is going to come out of that as as part of HR one. Yeah, well, as, uh, Section four hundred one essentially had been weaponized by blue states around the country, New York and. Uh, Washington, Oregon, and and others, and and that had been increasingly so during the course of the Trump administration. And this is when you had uh, good energy projects uh, that were coming online that otherwise would have been approved. And uh, those uh, blue states, the uh, uh, both elected leaders and also uh, career bureaucrats uh, who, who really just had a political agenda, uh, they were uh, abusing uh, some of the uh, language in Section 401, um, basically uh, using loopholes to derail projects, um, not because it had anything to do with water quality, which is what Section 401 is all about, um, but because uh, it did not fit their, um, uh, their political purpose, uh, you know, of the day. And uh, so we basically tightened up that language to prevent that type of weaponization. Uh, got it reported out of the uh, subcommittee, uh, out of committee, and then, of course, um, uh, leadership decided to include that as part of the overall HR1 uh, energy package uh, that the House passed a few weeks ago. I'm very, very pleased and proud to have that in there. Which is important because usually the, uh, the number of the bills usually shows the importance that leadership places on policy. And uh, being part of HR one, of course, means that uh, it's an important piece of legislation for the agenda for the majority at the time. So, uh, congratulations on that. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, we got it through the House. Uh, we'll see what the Senate does. They're likely not to do anything on it, 
but later on in the year, when we have a major uh, appropriations omnibus package, maybe we can get some of those policy riders included in that and across the finish line that way. Uh, but, it, but it's very important from a, a legislative standpoint to have at least one body uh, that has endorsed, uh, you know, major reforms like we did with H.R. 1. Uh, if H.R. 1 were implemented into law today, it would unleash a, a tremendous amount of energy potential in this country. And people would see the effect of that. Uh, we'd be exporting more oil and gas, uh, and that would help to drive down the price. I don't know about you, but uh, the prices are still mighty high in my district and every, everywhere else I travel. Oh, uh, that's true. That's true. Um, and I know we have a lot of firms in our industry that are ready to expand that energy infrastructure and and, and help get more energy to more customers. So uh, you mentioned, you know, the WOTUS and the fact that uh, the uh, House resolution uh, was by, you know, it, it just it, it unfortunately came up short in the House. But um, at the same time, a federal judge did stay the order in about 24 states. What, what's next in your mind for Waters of the U.S.? Uh, you know, where does it go from here? Is it going to play out in the courts, or is there going to be another uh, push against uh, uh, the rural deregulatory agencies? Well, I think you're going to see most of the action in the courts uh, moving forward. Uh, speaking of that particular lawsuit, um, I wish that the state of North Carolina had been one of the signatories to that lawsuit, so therefore we wouldn't have to deal with this new WOTUS rule in North Carolina either, but that's not the case. Uh, you know, so here you have an example of uh, the murkiness, uh, the muddiness uh, of, the, of, this, uh, of this issue, no pun intended there, uh, but you got half the country that has to abide by it, the other half of the country that, that does not. Um, and, you know, one of the major flaws of the rule it's basically the uh, Obama rule of 2015, but it's cloaked a little differently, so it would appear to uh, appear to be nicer, appear to be a little gentler, appear to be a little more workable uh, for folks out there. But in reality, it's not going to be, and and that's because it's too subjective. Uh, the definition is, is too subjective, is too is too wide ranging, and uh, any bureaucrat could uh, take any uh, any look at it any day and come to a different conclusion, and that's. And that and that's problematic. Um, I've always believed that uh, rules and regulations are important. You need good uh, uh, good guidance on the road, so to speak. Uh, everybody needs to know what the rules of the road are. Uh, but you don't need ambiguity. You don't you don't need subjectiveness. Um, uh, you don't need a stop sign every ten feet. And uh, that unfortunately is is what uh, what type of uh, regulatory quagmire. Uh, this this rule would uh, would bring about and already is bringing about. Uh, you know, this is an issue that's been litigated for years. Uh, there needs to be some uh, clarity brought to the table. I do think that uh, the uh, case before the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, Sackett versus the EPA, the Sackett family versus the EPA, I think um, uh, the Supreme Court will have a uh, ruling that's somewhat favorable. I say somewhat because I'm not necessarily anticipating a clear uh, concise win. I think it will be somewhat nuanced, uh, but I do think it will be helpful. And then, of course, uh, we'll see what happens with the lawsuit that the states have brought, uh, you know, where you got basically, um, you know, 24, uh, 24 states in the union that uh, uh, currently don't have to abide by it because of the uh, judge's ruling. So we'll see where, where that goes. And then, then in the meantime, we'll continue in Congress, uh, you know, to see what we can do 
uh, to mitigate the effects of the rule and the implementation of the rule. Uh, when we have an appropriations bill later on this year, I expect that uh, you know we'll try to include a policy rider there stating that no uh, money shall be used uh, to uh, to implement. Uh, the new rule. And so, you know, we'll be able to do some small things like that, that uh, in the end could end up being very, very helpful in the long run. Uh, but I don't see a major uh, point of clarity on this unless the U.S. Supreme Court has a very clean cut, um, straightforward, uh, you know, great ruling on Sackett versus EPA, which is possible. Uh, but again, I'm not necessarily expecting that. I think it'd be more nuanced. And um, but if I'm wrong and they do have a clear, concise, uh, you know, ruling uh, that will help tremendously. And then, uh, you know, the administration's going to have to take that ruling into account and go back and rework their rule anyway. So uh, maybe the fact that we've had a strong bipartisan vote in the House and the Senate uh, actually got the bill uh, to the president's desk, uh, even though he vetoed it, uh, you know, maybe that will have some sway in uh, encouraging the administration to be a little more reasonable with this. Well, it's it's something that we're watching closely, um, so we're, we're eager for some action on that and just to see where it all actually does end up. Um, I do want to pivot over to uh, the infrastructure bill uh, because we're in, you know, about two years past its, 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 its enactment. Money is starting to flow. Uh, we are hearing from states that... Uh, you know, while while the money is being spent, you know, at the, at the federal level that the states, some states are moving very quickly to, to get it out the door. We have a lot of firms that are ready and eager to get projects started. Um, you know, how what's your perspective uh, in North Carolina on 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 how the money is being spent? Uh, do you think that sh more should be being done at the uh, at the state or even in a federal level at the department to speed the funds? Um, how do you see it all playing? Well, I think a lot of that is yet to be determined. Uh, you know, uh, had, the, had the bill not had so much uh, green uh, uh, industry um, uh, items in there, particularly the, the electric vehicle stations and all the focus on EVs, uh, I think you would have seen a tremendous amount of Republican support uh, for the infrastructure bill uh, in the House. And of course, it had uh, some bipartisan support, uh, you know, in the Senate. Um, you know, it takes a little while, uh, you know, for money to get out the door. And um, I'm sure, uh, I, and in fact, I know the state of North Carolina is, you know, taking a look at uh, where they have needs and where, where they can utilize that. Um, uh, there's going to be some good things to come out of it, uh, you know, for the state. And, um, you know, so we're just going to have to continue, continue to follow that. Um, you know, when I talk to my friends in the legislature back home, um, you know, I think they're waiting to see uh, how the state plans to implement some of that. Again, it's not uncommon at all, you know, for a bill that passes in the fall, it's never implemented in just a few months. Uh, you know, usually it takes a year or more for them to figure out how they want to disperse it and, and for what projects they want to disperse it to. Uh, but I do think uh, there's going to be some some good benefit for all the states around the country, including including North Carolina. And like I said, had there not been so much of an emphasis on uh, electric vehicles and and uh, the uh, uh, attitude that we got to move to electric uh, tomorrow, uh, no matter what the consequence, I think you would have seen uh, pretty strong bipartisan support in both chambers of Congress. Yeah, I, I think that the uh, the one thing that we know from uh passage of the IIJA in, in our own research is, is, a, is a question of workforce 
and the talent available to do the work that the bill calls for. Uh, we have a research institute that found that uh, with the bill in place, there's going to be a national shortage of just the under 100,000. We're looking at about 82,000 engineers that are going to be needed to fill uh, the jobs to get the work done. Uh, now, this kind of goes right to something else that you've been kind of outspoken on uh, recently. Of course, North Carolina is a great high-tech state, uh, becoming much more so uh, each year. And I know that you've been a, a, an advocate for STEM education. Um, and actually, you, uh, you, you teamed up, I saw, before the State of the Union with, with Miss USA uh, to kind of uh, uh, hammer that idea home. I, she's a chemical engineer herself, and I I, I noticed that you were talking about that from, from what you're hearing from your constituents about uh, high quality jobs. Uh, what, what in your mind should we be doing to really incentivize uh, STEM education uh, in the United States? Well, STEM education is really critically important and um, I think uh, we need to do a better job uh, of uh, advertising to our youth uh, just how critically important uh, science, technology, math, uh, engineering is uh, to um, uh, our economic survival, our economic growth, and even more important than that, our standing in the world, our ability to be a leader in the world in innovation. Uh, so it's a really exciting, uh, you know, topic uh, and area, and I think we need to be more um, assertive in uh, promoting uh, STEM education. And and I think we also, along those lines. Uh, need to be more uh, cognizant uh, that there are a lot of young people today who feel like they're only a success if they go to college, if they go to a traditional liberal arts uh, university, uh, whereas they could also go and get a great education uh, in, a, in a field uh, such as welding or uh, uh, electrician or plumber or any of those brick masonry. Uh, you know, masonry as a category in general. I mean, all those areas are areas where we need a tremendous amount of additional workforce uh, so that uh, the economy can grow. And uh, so I, I think that's a critically important point. Um, uh, I was with Miss USA a few weeks ago where we were talking about the importance of STEM education. That's one of her platforms as uh, Miss USA. And uh, elected officials, um, um, you know, Miss USA, Miss North Carolina, uh, anybody who's in a uh, role where you have access uh, to the news media and you have access to the public airways, I, I think it's incumbent upon us to uh, talk about the benefits and the importance of, of STEM education and just how much that means for American competitiveness, how much that means for American uh, influence in the world. Um, and not only that, uh, how much it means, uh, you know, in terms of growing the economy and having a prosperous uh, society here at home. Absolutely. Yeah. Any way to amplify the message, uh, you want to make sure to take advantage of that. Um, and I imagine there's also, I guess, a national security component to it as well. I mean, uh, Fayetteville's home to the 82nd Airborne and American Special, Army Special Warfare. I mean, warfare, warfare is getting more technical um, and it's a it's a it's a, you know, uh, with our international competitors, um, potential belligerents, um, having an educated workforce that can that can go toe to toe with 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 uh, um, our competitors is critically important as well. I'd imagine. Well, no no question about that. Uh, you know, Fort Bragg is just outside of my district there uh, to the west. I have Camp uh, Lejeune, which most people know it as Camp Lejeune, 
the family uh, requested the uh, uh, change in pronunciation of the name uh, several years ago. Uh, that's just outside of my district, uh, technically in Greg Murphy's district, uh, Fort Bragg's technically in Richard Hudson's district. But all of us in the North Carolina delegation are, are very, very supportive of our armed forces. Uh, it's a big part of our state. Of course, I have a tremendous number of veterans that live in my district. And, uh, you know, and, and they have uh, great uh, uh, skills that they can contribute. Uh, one of the great things we have in North Carolina is our community college system uh, where you can go back and be retrained or trained anew uh, in a brand new field and come out and be very, very successful and, and earn a very good paycheck too, uh, particularly, uh, you know, this day and time. Uh, because employers across the board, uh, whether they're working on military bases or, or whether they're civilian uh, working on military bases or in the public at large, um, you know, they, they have a great opportunity if they have the right skill sets. And uh, so, again, it goes back to making sure that folks understand the importance of STEM, what it really is, and how critical it is to the survival and the prosperity of America. You know, Congressman, before I before I let you go, there is one uh, you, something you mentioned early at the beginning of the program is is your work um, on on the on the Senate side of the of the Capitol as as a senior policy staffer for uh, both uh, former Senator uh, uh, Jesse Helms and Elizabeth Dole. Um, I always like to ask this of former staff who become elected members. I ask this of Peter Defazio and some others. You know, how how did that work? kind of prepare you or, or, or create kind of the, the perspective that you bring in to your role now as an elected member, having that the benefit of uh, the experience on the staff side? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I think it's a big help. Uh, you know, I still have a lot of relationships in the U.S. Senate today, particularly at the staff level. Uh, you would be surprised at the number of staffers that were around when I was there uh, 20 plus years ago. Uh, that are still on the Hill in some capacity, or if they're not on the Hill, they're, they're in a very strategic uh, place um, in the greater Washington community, uh, whether they're lobbying or, or, or any other endeavor, and so, or think tank, for example. But um, it, it was very valuable experience for me. I, I probably still understand the Senate better than I even understand the House, <laughs> even after uh, five terms now, four terms now. And uh, so that uh, that Senate knowledge has helped me, um, you know, get some things across the finish line that I probably wouldn't have gotten across the finish line uh, in my time here as a House member. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I probably have a fuller um, more uh, and more appreciation for the rules of the Senate than most of my uh, House colleagues do. And I was talking to my colleague, Dave Bender, uh, and he mentioned that you have a have an event every year that kind of has a, a big focus on uh rock band cover bands, um, 70s, 80s. So I got to ask you, you know, who's your favorite? Who's your favorite, uh, let's say, 70s? Uh, so uh, there, there's several. Uh, I've, I've always been a Fleetwood Mac fan. Uh, the Eagles, uh, you know, they obviously, uh, you know, incre are incre incredible performers. Um you know, I've always found Elton John to be uh, just an incredibly talented, you know, individual. Um, but if I had to, you know, pick a band from the 70s, I'd probably somewhere either uh, Fleetwood Mac or the Eagles, I'd probably lean to Fleetwood Mac. Strong choice. Very strong choice. Uh, Congressman, thank you again for taking the time out of your day. 
Uh, you know, it's, it's getting busy on the hill, so I appreciate the time. Thank you very uh, so much for being part of the program and, and look forward for our, uh, our members to see you next month uh, during our legislative event. Well, good to be with you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. And again, uh, this has been Engineering Influence, a podcast from the American Council of Engineering Companies. We'll see you next time.